Welcome to the Screen the Screener College Basketball Podcast with your hosts, Mike Randall and Gus Kearns. Folks, we are honored to have Sam Vecini of the Sporting News with us today to discuss all things NBA draft. Sam has a huge wealth of knowledge on NBA, college basketball. He has his own fantastic podcast called the Game Theory Podcast, which is available iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, everywhere you want, it's there. He's got his own website, Game Theory Sam. Dot libsyn.com and of course he can be found on twitter at sam underscore vicini sam welcome to the screen the screener podcast thanks so much for a few minutes how you doing i'm doing great i mean one thing you didn't mention and the only reason i'm thinking about it is because she just walked in i have a little five pound dog as well oh, uh nice. so that that uh you know that's always worth noting as well just this little chihuahua terrier mix that uh you know, is, is as frustrating as she is lovely. <laughs> yeah. That, you know, it's funny, Sam. My daughter wants a dog. Somehow my wife has, has gotten the fence in the backyard. So, like, they think I don't catch on to what's coming here, right? Like, I, I know the dog is coming. <laughs> you know, we could say we're fencing for the deer, but I have a feeling it's for the dog. So, I think I'll be joining you and uh, give me a, how, to, how to train a pet. I'll need that for sure. <laughs> yeah, we can, we can do a podcast in three months. <laughs> how do you get your dog to not pee inside? Right, well, right. actually... Actually, I, I would still need some training on that because my dog has the bladder of a pee and like still doesn't listen to me when I tell her not to pee inside. So, you know, yeah, what, what can you do? Right. And what do you do when everyone says they're going to walk it and you know it's going to be me listening to your podcast at six in the morning <laughs> walking this thing down the street? That's, <laughs> that's what's going to happen. All right. For sure. Uh, all right, Sam. So here we go. 182 underclassmen have declared. 182. That's 137 from college and 45 international players. Sam, I can't comprehend that. What does that even mean? Is this more than a two-round draft? Did I miss the memo? Yeah. I mean, I'm someone that really avoids talking like in the specifics of this is a two round draft. There are only 30 guaranteed contracts and 60 picks because, and this is something I wrote at vice last week. I talked to LJ peak at Georgetown. Who's like considered a potential second round pick could go undrafted. I mean, if he has a strong process, wouldn't be crazy for him to, you know, kind of get into the end of the first round even, but like he's someone that's traditionally on the fence who, uh, you know, considered hiring an agent and he did it immediately basically. So he can't go back to college now, even though he is, is one of these borderline prospects and the reason he's doing it is because he is a kid he is a little one and a half year old boy that he wants to go out and support and he was the first person in his family to go to college and comes from like this little place called Gaffney in South Carolina. And, uh, he wants to be able to make money playing basketball for as long as he can and, uh, make as much of it as he can. And I think that we often forget this idea of there being, uh, real life situations. These are not, uh, these are not stock assets. Uh, even though I think that some NBA teams would do better to consider them as such, uh, these are not uh, just people that uh, only have basketball at heart. They have family members they have to support. They have a lot of other things going on in their lives. They are not just student athletes. And I think we would all be better off to consider, you know, not all 137 of these kids. And by the way, this number will dwindle it will cut in sure, half probably yeah. by the time uh may 24th rolls around when these kids have to decide if they want to stay in college or go to the nba or go professionally specifically um 
you know, we have to remember that these kids uh, have a lot of reasons why they're turning professional and they often turn professional with the knowledge that they're not necessarily going to play in the NBA and that they're going to be able to make somewhere between 70 and 120 thousand dollars playing in some other league beyond uh the d league and the nba no that's very true you know when lj peak first announced i was very critical of that you know and then i took a look a little deeper and and peak to me is fine right he was there in georgetown for three years and listen we don't know the situations with their families and what they have going on my only criticism that i have is some of these kids that come out the one for me sam is freshman year because you come out as a freshman, you really have no chance to have a degree whatsoever. And I'm just concerned about the, the vagabonds. I mean, when all these kids declare, they're not thinking of going to Croatia and then going to China and bouncing back and forth. And I, I think mistakes like the Javaris Crittendons of the world and some of these issues that have occurred just happen because these are immature kids. And so to peak is fine. You're, you're there for three years. You can always fall back. You got a family. But I guess I just get bewildered at some of these three point per game freshman players that declared and you look back and say you're really going to develop better in the NBA than you are in college one more year and make yourself a lottery pick I think in terms of game there's not really going to be a whole lot of difference in terms of college development versus uh, NBA development or D-League development or professional development in Europe or Australia or wherever Uh, you know maybe they're somewhat more skill development focus drills that you do in college that maybe you don't get a chance to do as much uh, once you turn professional. But at the same time, you get to spend more time on your game and maybe you go about doing that yourself and working on it. So I don't really think there's a big difference in terms of, you know, do these players develop their games in college better or in the NBA or professionally or what have you. Um, I do think that there is certainly a mental development aspect of it. Um, You mentioned Javaris Crittenton and, you know, I I understand that. But again, like Javaris Crittenton was a top 20 pick that made $4 million in three years. That's true. And, you know, had every opportunity to make the right decisions and just didn't make the right decisions. Right. Um, You're always going to have kids that make wrong decisions and you're always going to have people and young adults out there that, uh, you know, end up making mistakes in life. And that's just a matter of the way that these kind of things work out. But at the same time, I'm all for these kids having the freedom to do what they want. Uh, Ultimately it is their lives. I think that as long as they understand the options at hand and, you know, in my experience, Uh, You know, I've talked to kids like Trevor Lacey, who ended up declaring and Michael Qualls and, you know, these kids that go undrafted and uh, they really understood what their process was beforehand. Right. Like they understood what options were at hand. They, uh, you know, the key is just making sure that you get what could potentially happen what is the lowest potential outcome of what could happen here and occasionally you do get someone like cliff alexander who ends up declaring after his freshman year uh and going undrafted and uh it becomes relatively disappointing but cliff alexander again stayed on portland's roster uh the whole season and made five hundred thousand dollars maybe six hundred thousand dollars uh you know that rookie season and you know it's a give and take and i think that a lot of the time the freshmen that are making these decisions they end up working out and then the older kids they understand their options so ultimately i think that the process is better now than it was whenever you could not test the nba waters and i think that this 137 underclassmen mark is indicative of 
a more open process. And I think that ultimately that is more beneficial to the kids at hand. One thing that I do think that the NBA should consider is I think that they should consider expanding the combine invite list instead of only inviting 60. Yep. They should invite 90 or so now. They used to do that. Uh, they have since stopped doing it. And the reason that I say that they should start doing it now is because ultimately who this process is hurting now, this early entry process, is kids who stay for all four years. Because this year, I think that the number is like there are only like 11 four-year players mm-hmm. that are going to be at the combine this year. And... I think that that stinks. Uh, I think that it would be great if we could uh, find a way to get more of those kids involved. Like last year, you saw someone like Fred Van Vliet didn't get invited to the combine. and He ends up sticking in Toronto for the entire year and playing like legit minutes occasionally. Um, There's just so many, so many examples of guys like that who uh, are capable of, you know, showing, showing their stuff in front of NBA teams at the combine. So that would be one thing that I would like to see. I would like to see the NBA expand its combine invite list. Well said. And I like the point about the kids knowing their options. And that's all we really want, right, is to know their options. I had the experience of working with Lenny Cook for several years. So that's my point of reference, just so you know. Yeah. Now, listen, that was different. That was high school. But th- that situation has scarred me. So I-, I sit there and I see these players who declare – We'll get into some in a minute, and I just want to make sure that they're getting good advice. Listen, we can talk about a guy like Anthony Bennett, who was the first pick in the NBA draft. Fine, didn't think things didn't work out, but he got a lot of money for being the first pick in the NBA draft. So, right. you know, you're right. There is a flip side, and that's good to hear. And I totally agree about the seniors. Uh, and I'll get to this now. I'm going to jump around on you. You were high on Malcolm Brogdon last year, and he's had a fantastic season for the Bucks. My partner Gus Kearns and I are huge Bucks fans. Could be the rookie of the year. I think that the, the draft, the, the combine process, is selling those four-year players short who can really make an impact yeah no i i agree with you 100 percent there uh you know just because a player stays four years maybe he's 22 years old 23 years old um that doesn't mean that he is incapable of becoming an nba impact impact player i'm really glad that malcolm brogdon is uh you know showing out not only because i've been talking him up for now three years i think uh as a potential nba player yep but uh, just from the standpoint of being able to show that these seniors, uh, they're not chopped liver. They're not uh, you know, done by the time they hit 22. You can still improve. You can still uh, get to the point where your game is very valuable. All right, let's dive into it, Sam. Top five players. Let us have it. Who do you got? My top five right now, it's still a little bit fluid. I think that uh, Markel Fultz will be number one on my board. I think when everything comes down to it, uh, like barring injury in the pre-draft process, he's just someone that I consider to be, uh, just a small level above the rest of the prospects in this class. Um, you know, two, three, four, five, six, I would say, or, somewhat fluid right now you know if i ended up shifting uh these guys up and down a little bit it would not be surprising number two right now i have jason tatum number three i have josh jackson number four i have lonzo ball and at number five i have jonathan isaac and this is a shift that i made recently And, and a lot of it has to do with the fact that it's hard for me to see jonathan isaac failing totally um, he just brings such a strong level of 
impact defense immediately in terms of the way that he's able to protect the weak side of the rim as well as move his feet really well. He's incredible feet for a kid that is six foot ten uh, with a nine foot plus standing reach and might one day be able to play even a little bit of small ball center. For instance, like you guys are Bucks fans. Um you see a guy like Thon Maker yep. in the impact that he's been able to make. And that was a pick that I killed last year because I did not think that he was going to be able to make an impact within like two years of being on his rookie deal. Yeah, but you did. Um, but Sam, to be fair, not to sell, I'm not going to let you sell yourself short here. You said in your preview there, you were saying that he could be a first round pick and he does have a high ceiling. So he did make an impact. You saw it coming maybe just a little bit quicker than you thought. But you did like Thon, you know, for an eventual upside guy. Right. And like, I'm not, I'm not saying like I didn't have Thon as like a, you know, late first round pick or whatever, because I did like, but I, I am surprised by how early he's been able to show it. I still do wonder if he is like more than like a top 70 player ceiling than like a potential all-star ceiling. Uh, like I think that his role is ultimately going to be a slightly better version of what you see right now, right? Like he's a high motor kid. He's always been a high character kid who plays really, really hard. I'm not sold. And I never really have been in terms of the way his offensive game is going to translate fully to the NBA. Um, But having said that, being able to move your feet now, and this is where I'll connect it back to Isaac, being able to move your feet now at seven feet tall and being able to switch screen and rolls so consistently or help in screen and rolls like he can is such an important factor for centers. If you can have a center who can get out on the perimeter and really move his feet well, I think that that is a legitimate difference maker for your team. And it also counts at the four as well where you're going to have one four one five pick and rolls where these guys are going to come up they're going to set screens and they're going to be expecting to have a mismatch on the point guard uh, on a bigger man and Jonathan Isaac I think is going to negate a lot of those mismatches he has incredible feet he's already a high level defender I can give you uh, a a number here so he is someone who had a 25 percent defensive rebounding rate six percent block rate and two and a half percent steal rate this year There have been four other players since 2009 to do that in college. So one of them is Anthony Davis, who obviously two-time all-defense member. Um, Andre Robertson is another one who will probably make the all-defense team this year. Dwayne Dedman is another one. Dwayne Dedman, uh, the Spurs were five points better defensively with him on the floor this year uh, than off. And I think that he will probably get a couple of votes for the all-defense team this year. Uh, he won't make the team, though, necessarily. The fourth one was a guy named Eric Murray at West Virginia who uh, you know, got kicked off of two teams in three years in college basketball. And ultimately, his career kind of went down the drain mm-hmm. because uh, if you, you kind of you know read the stories about him, he was partying a little too much. And uh, you know, it was admittedly just an issue that he had in terms of his uh you know preparedness to move on to a professional level but um you know three out of four is not bad especially when that fourth one is a guy that you know struggled with his own issues and jonathan isaac has none of those issues so i think that you're going to look at a high high level defender in jonathan isaac who might have a higher defensive ceiling than any player in this draft as well as a guy who's going to be able to play smart offense i don't know that i see the ceiling offensively that a lot of people do a lot of people see him as like a high upside guy i see him as more of a high floor guy who's going to be able to bring strong defense and who's going to be able to cut off ball make smart decisions offensively and hopefully knock down three pointers he shot 35 
75% from three this year. I think that uh, that is something that he's going to be able to bring relatively quickly, maybe within the first two years uh, within the NBA. If Jonathan Isaac goes fifth overall, the noise you hear will be my partner laughing at me during the night of the draft because I was arguing that Isaac should stay because I saw him possibly coming back and dominating. I mean, everything you said, I totally agree with. I just see the two points against Miami in March, the eight points against Duke. He had his moments where he got some double-doubles and he had some moments where he disappeared. But going back to what you said about the development, if, if, if the NBA is a fair place to develop and he's ready to go there, I mean, there's no reason to come back if you're going to be draft fifth, uh, fifth or sixth overall. Even even like if you get draft tenth overall, I see no reason to return. Uh, and to be honest, even if you get drafted twenty fifth overall, I see no reason to return to yeah. college basketball. Um, but that that's my opinion. I can totally understand the argument for wanting to. Um, you know, develop your game in the confines of college versus in the NBA. It's all a comfort factor, right? Like, I don't think it's necessarily that right. one is better than the other. It's which one you're more comfortable with. In Isaac's case, I think that uh, when you're a top 10 pick, I have him at five. I'm probably slightly higher than, uh, you know, other people are. Having said that, uh, if you're going to be a top 10 pick, I think you just got to go because not only does it help you in terms of the money you're going to get immediately, but it helps you get into your rookie contract or get off of your rookie contract just one year quicker. Let me go at you for Lonzo Ball. I, I, I will admit, full disclosure here, I may be being, being swayed by the ridiculousness that is LeVar Ball. And I did hear whispers from some NBA executives that they are concerned about the father being involved too much. You may find that hard to believe that all of a sudden you know, they're, they're dealing you know, with the father. But I think that that's part of the package. I think strongly that De'Aaron Fox is going to be a much better pro than Lonzo Ball. I'll give you my reasons real quick. Of course, they went head-to-head. Fox has the length. I know his shot is not as good as Ball's, but Ball had those you know, 25, 30-foot three-pointers. I don't know if he's going to be a consistent scorer. I think Ball has to be in the right situation in order to really take advantage of his skills. I think Fox is a little bit of a better athlete in terms of finishing at the rim. And I just see Fox as an on-the-ball defender. I think he's the type of guy who can be a championship-level point guard. I'm curious as to why you have Ball ahead of Fox. So with De'Aaron Fox, one thing that really, really matters now is being able to space the floor, right? Uh, You really need to be able to – if you're going to have the ball in your hands, you need to be able to shoot the basketball. And De'Aaron Fox has been um, a really poor shooter this season. I think that the shot percentages probably undersell what he is in terms of a shooter, but the concern is still there that he is not going to be this – crazy high level shooter necessarily either and with ball i think he is going to be able to shoot the basketball he's going to be able to space the floor and i see a slightly higher floor for lonzo ball than i do De'Aaron fox and the reason that i see a higher floor for lonzo ball is that he's six six with a six eight wingspan and he's going to be able to defend twos and threes i don't think he's going to be all that great at the point of attack defensively like you mentioned with De'Aaron fox uh he's good De'Aaron fox is going to be a very very good point guard defender um One thing with Lonzo Ball that I'm just kind of considering is, is this dude just one of those special, like very, very different talents? You know what I mean? Like he kind of does have an it factor about him. Absolutely. 100%. And to me, 
I, I would not be surprised. I think that his ceiling is super, super high. His floor is relatively high as well. With De'Aaron Fox, I think you can make an argument that De'Aaron Fox will be a better pro than Lonzo Ball. Uh, I, I don't think that's unfair. It's why I have them in the same tier. And if you were to rank one over the other, I would not have any sort of qualms necessarily either. Uh, having said that, the, the reason that I like Lonzo Ball is just I, I buy the – uh, I buy the quote unquote star f- power factor of Lonzo Ball, and I do understand the father concerns. I think is that it in the really? End, I mean, Sam, is that really a concern? I mean, maybe I'm just. T- do you think NBA teams care? I mean, part of me thinks they do, and the part of me thinks, come on, we're talking about a professional here. So, is that from what you're hearing? Is that a concern? I think in the end, it's not going to be that big of a concern. I've, I've talked to people who don't really want to deal with it necessarily. Okay, right. Um, yeah. You know, they think that uh, it could. Uh, it's just something that no one wants to have to have in terms of uh, like quote unquote baggage whenever you're talking about an NBA player. Uh, having said that, you know, LeVar did not cause any problems at UCLA this year in terms of like interfering with coaching. You know yeah, what I that's mean? That's true. Yeah. Um, it, it was all public facing stuff. It was all, you know, quote unquote brand building stuff that he was trying to do uh, for the big baller brand or whatever. Um, so I think that in the end, it's going to come down to uh, Lonzo Ball. If, if you buy him as a player, if you buy him as a special talent, I don't think the dad is going to stop you from picking him right. okay. number two overall, number three overall. Um, it, it might give you pause, It's, but I don't think it's going to stop anyone either. If, if Lonzo Ball is the team at number two, whoever it ends up being, if he's their guy, they're going to take him regardless of the father. Let's switch gears to an underrated player in my mind, Caleb Swanigan. Now, here's my thoughts on Swanigan. I understand 6'9", 250, a little bit undersized. He's certainly not going to play the three. He's got to play a four. But the improvement that he showed from his freshman to his sophomore year, field goal percentage from 46 to 53, the three-point percentage, incredible, 45%. He played more minutes. He was in better shape. His combine was not good last year. The rebounds are up to 12.5 from eight, and the scoring went up. Is this a guy who can have sustained success in the pros? Should he stay in? Should he come back? What are your thoughts on Caleb Swanigan? Uh, I, I think that he will probably come out. I think that just the reason is, is like what more can he do in college um, than do what he did this year? The, what I will say about Swanigan is, is I'm not quite as high on Swanigan as other people are. And, and I totally buy the arguments for him. He's not just a good kid. He's a great kid yep. in terms of uh, everything you talk to him. He's very kind. He's very humble. He's very smart. Uh, he's he's quiet, but he's a, a very good kid who well, you know works as hard as anybody on the basketball floor. And I tend not – I do really tend to value – uh, just the ability to come in and work hard and valuing your basketball career. He genuinely values his basketball career in a way that, uh, you know, probably 90% of this draft class at least does not. And, you know, he thinks it can be taken from it at any time. And, you know, this guy worked from being a 300 pound 12 year old to a guy that's like 250 pounds now uh, and in relatively good shape. My thing is, is that I don't think he's ever going to really be much of a defensive player in the NBA. I don't know where you stick him. Um, if you put him on fours, teams are going to kill him with one four, 
pick and rolls. If you put him at the five, uh, you really do need a modicum of rim protection at the five in today's NBA, and he doesn't really provide any of that, and teams will still kill him with one five pick and rolls. I like the offensive skill set, and I think he's going to be a bench big in the NBA for a long time. I think he's probably going to play eight years or so in the NBA, maybe more, you know, maybe less, who knows. Um, but I think that like he's going to play in the NBA. He's going to get to a second contract for sure. The question is, what is the ceiling? Do I think he can be a valuable contributor on a playoff team, or are you going to have to sit him in the same way that Oklahoma City had to sit, for instance, in S. Cantor in this playoffs because he was just relentlessly attacked in pick and roll? Yep. And I think that that's ultimately the paradox of Caleb Swanigan, right? Like he's a guy that you really want to root for, but I, I just, I can't get past the defensive deficiencies that I think are going to be problematic for him uh, going forward. That's completely fair. It's just a guy, you know, like you said, you love to root for, I see, you see all the stories on him, how he's really done so well, but you're right. I mean, what else can he do at this point coming back? I, I don't see 18 and a half, 12 and a half rebounds, th- even three assists. This is his time to go. I just hope he's a first round pick of some guaranteed money. Sam, why on earth would an NBA team draft Harry Giles? Can you please convince me of this? What is the attraction of Harry Giles? I mean, I know high school, but high school, he was dunking on me. I had glasses and headgear. He was destroying me. Like, why would they take a risk on a guy with the injuries and the lack of production? Well, he he was absolutely uh, a superstar in high school. Uh, He was, uh, you know, I understand the quality of competition concerns, but, you know, this kid in high school may have been better than any prospect since Anthony Davis. Uh, He was that level good. And if he was never healthy his year at Duke, he was never competent in his body his year at Duke. And if it happens, if he does get to the point where he becomes this competent, competent, uh, you know, recovered athletically player, you know, you could be getting a top five pick in this draft down at 27 or so, 25 in this draft. So it's all about, it's all going to come down to what happens in the pre-draft, you know, medical reporting process, right? Like what do team doctors find when they go in and take a look at his knees and, you know, take a look at, uh, the structural integrity of his body. Do they find that his body's going to be fine and it's all about him just becoming a more comp- confident basketball player again? Or is it going to be something that will be recurring and it's going to be problematic? I mean, this is why you have team doctors and team trainers that are paid you know, six figures every year because uh, these decisions in terms of keeping guys on the floor and whether or not they'll be able to be kept on the floor are just paramount to getting any sort of value out of draft prospects. So, uh, you know, I understand why people would be excited about Harry Giles. I do. Um, I also understand all of the questions and the ultimate uh, answer is right now. I have no idea where Harry Giles is going to go in this draft. Uh, If you told me that the doctors came back and said that he was going to be fine and his knees are, uh, you know, they've been fixed perfectly in terms of surgically repaired and everything has, uh, everything looks great, then I would be like, okay, uh, you know, take them at 15, take them at 13, wherever. But if it comes back and the knees are uh, problematic and he ends up going 38 or 40 or 45, I would not be surprised at all. We just don't know. Everything is so secretive in regard to Harry Giles right now. And the thinking with Giles, of course, is if I come back and have another knee injury, I'm done. So why not take the, the, the opportunity when at least there's a chance that I could you know, be healthy and, and have a sustained career, right? 
Well, I think that part of it, too, is, I mean, like I said, this kid was the number one high school basketball player in the country. Uh, He was the ultimate one-and-done player, and I think it's really difficult to get out of that mindset once you're in the one-and-done mindset. You know what I mean? Uh, I think that, you know, he was expecting to become this one-and-done player, and ultimately, it didn't necessarily work out uh, in the way that he was hoping, so he ends up just deciding to declare because he's in that mindset anyway. So, we'll see. Uh, You know, I... I, I root for Harry Giles because, again, he's this uh, elite level kid in terms of his personality, in terms of uh, you know everything that goes into being a good person. So I, I'll be rooting for him. But you know, I have many of the same questions you do, and NBA teams have many of the same questions you do. We just don't know. Here, here's a, here's a player that I think can have sustained success that seems to be dropping like a ton of bricks here. Frank Mason of Kansas. He is on. He is not on the latest update on Draft Express for their projections. I've seen him not drafted. I've seen him drafted late in the second round. I mean, Sam, I think of small players. I think of Nate Robinson. I think of Muggsy Bogues, Brevin Knight. How about Isaiah Thomas recently? Maybe he's not that explosive, but why can't Frank Mason be a backup point guard for some NBA team? Yeah, I'm right there with you on Frank Mason. I have Frank Mason at 35, like right in that range on my board. Yes, I I think he's going to play in the NBA. Uh, That kid is tough as nails. He's a good defender at the point of attack for sure. Um, he is going to be able to, uh, knock down shots off the dribble off the catch. He was one of the best jump shooters in all of college basketball this season. He's one thing that does scare me. He's not a terrific passer. He doesn't have like great court vision, but I do think that he's going to be uh, able to get space to get his shot off and he's going to be able to, you know, really annoy players defensively. One question, of course, is, uh, you know, he's 5'10", 5'11", or whatever. Uh, He's going to be a matchup problem defensively in the same way that, you know, Isaiah Thomas tries defensively, but he's not a good defender. He just can't be a good defender due to his size. Frank Mason's a little bit bigger, uh, so he might be able to, you know, you know, it's all on the margins at that stage. And marginally, he might be able to improve himself defensively to where he's not like a total hindrance to the team concept. But, uh, you know, defense is always going to be a problem, even if he's pesky at the point of attack in terms of switches that, you know, teams are able to get mismatches on. And, uh, you know, we'll see. We'll see what happens. It's a very difficult. Uh, he's a difficult prospect to project, but he's one player that because of his ability to shoot the basketball off the dribble, particularly, uh, I believe in. One guy I also believe in is Monte Morris, who just got out of Iowa State. 6'3", 175 pounds. He just seems to me to be a guy, Sam, that makes his teammates better. I feel like he can be a good piece to, to support. What he took did with that Iowa State team with Deontay, Deontay Burton, who never saw a shot he didn't want to take, and the rest of the group was amazing. How do you see Monte Morris in the pros? Uh, yeah, I have him. He's another one I'm super high on. I have him at number 28 on my board. Great. Uh, you know, one of the all t- he is the all time assist to turnover king in college basketball. Uh, 4.7 assist to turnover ratio. Uh, he led the country in three of his four seasons. He's incredibly consistent. He can shoot the basketball off the dribble. He has great uh, vision. He's a very smart basketball player. He profiles as the perfect uh, backup point guard in today's NBA. Exactly. And, This is something that I talk about relatively often that I think goes unreported a little bit. The backup point guard position in today's NBA is actually relatively weak, I think. Um, You know, you look at the top end and everyone talks about Chris Paul and, uh, you know, all of the other Damian Lillard, Kyrie Irving, Kyle Lowry, all of the other elite point guards, John Wall, Isaiah Thomas. Um, And nobody talks about the fact that once you get to like the 30 to 35, like on a list of point guards, 
there's a massive drop off. Huge. Uh, there, there's yeah. a huge drop off in terms of guys that teams can trust to just come in and run quality offense and run the team. So I think that, you know, Morris is going to be a prototypical guy who can really get teams in and out of his offense. 38% shooter from three. Uh, like I said, just really smart, really solid. Not a great defender, but not a disaster defender either. He's at least a smart one. All right, one more, Sam, then we'll get you out of here. Thanks so much for a few minutes. So who? go ahead, give us the crystal ball. Who's that second-round guy that you think is not getting enough recognition that could be this year's Malcolm Brogdon? Somebody who's maybe, you know, middle, second round, maybe a four-year player, whatever you think. Someone who can really make an impact that's just not getting enough recognition. So, yeah, the guy that I have is like a top 24 or so, top 22 prospect in this draft right now. Um that I think more NBA people see as the second round pick is semi Ojale oh, out of, yes. uh, out of SMU. I'm applauding. Uh, yes. Yeah. He's, he's a killer defender. Uh, you know, moves his feet really, really well on the perimeter. Uh, you know, has the strength throughout his torso. He's a four for sure in the NBA, but he has the strength throughout his torso to keep guys off the block, even though he's not the longest player. Um, and then even beyond that, he was a killer jump shooter this year. And I think that a lot of people, don't really notice it yet. Uh, he had a 61.9 effective field goal percentage this year on all jump shots. That was 10th out of the 395 players in Division One who took at least 180 jump shots last year. Uh, so he's developed into a guy who can shoot on the move. He can shoot off the catch. He can shoot off the dribble, uh, off of at least one dribble stop and pop, which is important when you're attacking closeouts in the NBA. Um, and plus, he's a really, really good, instinctual, uh, tough, physical defender that, uh, you know, again, that guy, I think, can play in the NBA for a long time. No doubt. Wow, folks, that was an incredible amount of knowledge from Sam Vecini. You got to check him out. Sporting News. He's on Twitter at Sam underscore Vecini. Game Theory Podcast is incredible. He's going to be going at it hard as we get closer to the NBA draft. Sam, I cannot thank you enough. Good luck with your dog. I'll be calling you back for advice. And thanks for giving <laughs> us a few moments here about, about the NBA draft. Uh, we're moving forward. Looking forward to June. No, thank you, Mike. Have a good day. Thanks so much.